Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also Not That Too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 26, Control, recorded on August 8th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Super Groovy, and our outro is T-shirts. I have some corrections this episode. I said that the folks at Jurassic Park bred and track 283 animals with the motion sensors, but I was dyslexic. The correct answer is 238. I've done something horribly wrong with the lawn this year. I've only mowed it once, and it's still short. Sorry, lawn. The correct thing to do is probably take some sort of care of you. And for all those times when I was a kid and I corrected everyone about Brontosaurus not being a real dinosaur, I was wrong. You wait for the dinosaur news section, because we're going to find out what really happened to Brontosaurus. In dinosaur news, we've got an article on dinosaur nomenclature and an article on phylogenetic analyses, possibly a precursor to what we will be talking about in our guest interview later on in this episode. The first article published on July 25th in the journal Evolutionary Biology. A great list of Tyrannosaurus specialists set to rebutting an article which came out in March naming two new species from the remains of Tyrannosaurus rex. The late Cretaceous dinosaur Tyrannosaurus rex was recently split into three species based on the premise that variation in the T. rex hypodyme is exceptional, indicating cryptic series and robust and gracile morphs, which we mentioned in episode 6, The Beach. An article refuting the proposition that Tyrannosaurus rex should be split into three species, including Imperator and Regina, suggests that the paper had problems with its hypothesis. The authors say that the following observations encouraged them to believe that Regina and Imperator were unsuccessfully argued to be distinct species. First, the paper says that the taxon diagnoses are based on two features that overlap between the species. Also, several skulls cannot be identified based on the diagnoses. Proportional comparisons between Tyrannosaurus and other theropods are based on incomparable samples. The tooth data are problematic. The stratigraphic framework divides the Hell Creek formation into thirds without the stratigraphic position of each specimen or independent age control showing the subdivisions are coeval or over the entire geographic area. And previous work found variation in T. rex but cannot be parsed into discrete categories. The new paper tested for, quote, gracile and, quote, robust morphs by analyzing the femoral and tooth ratios that were published in the multiple species study, suggesting agglomerative hierarchical clustering. The results found that each set of ratios are explained by one cluster, showing that dimorphism is not supported. And to further consider whether the differences known between Tyrannosaurus rex specimens great enough to warrant a distinct species, they also calculated the mean intraspecific robusticity of 112 species of living birds and four non-avian theropods. The dinosaurs showed that the absolute variation in Tyrannosaurus is unexceptional, and it does not indicate cryptic diversity. So, if the first paper said, look at all these differences between our specimens, there might be three species here, then the rebuttal is, yo, we looked at 112 avian and four non-avian examples and found that those differences between your specimens are, like, unexceptional. They concluded that T. regina and T. imperator are subjective junior synonyms of the big and famous T. rex. My second article today, Diplodocidae, the family of sauropods related to the famously understood Diplodocus, 
are known from the USA, Tanzania, Portugal, and Argentina, as well as Spain, England, Georgia, Zimbabwe, and Asia. Since Diplodocus's earliest discoveries in the late 1800s in the Morrison Formation between 12 and 15 nominal species ranging in age from the late Jurassic to early Cretaceous have been described. But the authors of A Specimen-Level Phylogenetic Analysis of Taxonomic Revision of Diplodocidae, published in the journal Peer J in April 2015, they found that the intragenetic relationships of the iconic multi-species genera Apatosaurus and Diplodocus are still poorly known. They opted to resolve this with a specimen-based phylogenetic analysis of the clade of Diplodocidae, analyzing 81 operational taxonomic units, 49 of which belong to Diplodocidae, that are all name-bearing type specimens proposed to belong to the clade, which were compared with relatively complete referred specimens, which increased the amount of anatomically overlapping material. The specimen, rather than species-based approach, increases knowledge of intraspecific and intrageneric variation in diplodocids, and the study demonstrates how specimen-based phylogenetic analysis is a valuable tool in sauropod taxonomy, and potentially in paleontology and taxonomy as a whole, say the authors. This analysis did synonymize Dinhierosaurus of Portugal's late Jurassic with the Supersaurus of the Morrison Formation, and confirmed a distinction between Apatosaurus and Diplodocus, and they also appear to have taken a species Diplodocus hayi and made it into a newly recognized dinosaur Galliamopus. But probably the famous part of this study that you heard about a few years ago, they recovered the famous Brontosaurus as a valid species. They brought the Brontosaurus back. It had been historically synonymized with Apatosaurus many years ago, but thanks to a more modern understanding of diplodocids, more specimens to compare the fossils against, and new techniques, its distinction can be recognized. So, all those mouthy kids who like to correct adults with their actually brontosaurus doesn't exist. You see, apatosaurus and the skull of camarasaurus, and then the international Zoological nomenclature. Uh, zip it. We're living in a post-2015 world where we have a brontosaurus, and you're wrong. So go to your room. I might have resembled that kid. With the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Returning this episode is our guest for episode six, The Beach, and you'll be pleased to hear again research scientist and dinosaur paleontologist from the Canadian Museum of Nature, Dr. Jordan Mallins, come back to see us. So thank you so much for coming back and doing this again. Happy to do it, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is really good. So last time we spoke, uh, we were talking a little bit about dinosaur nomenclature. There was this new article that had just come out at that time naming two new species of Tyrannosaurus to accompany the Tyrannosaurus rex, which were the Imperator and the Regina, which were cool names. And here we are chatting once again, and that's about the duration of time required for a new article to come out against the first paper, <laughs> saying that uh, that the, the distinctions weren't strong enough, and maybe maybe we should just stick with the rex and not the the, the other two proposed uh, names. How long does an academic paper usually take? Uh, to write? How long does it take to write? Or, or how long does well, it take to, read, to, to re write research? This seems more like it was a, an analysis of the the methods used as opposed to uh, going out and performing their own uh, research and then making their own assumptions. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, scientific papers vary in how long they, they take to write. Sometimes they, they take decades. Mm -hmm. Typically, they take maybe uh, on the order of a year or two. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this case, this was uh, specifically a response mm -hmm. made to that initial paper claiming that there were multiple species of Tyrannosaurus. This was a response to that paper by Thomas Carr and a bunch of other uh, Tyrannosaur researchers. Mm -hmm. 
And so this was more a critique of, as you say, the methods. It wasn't a novel analysis of the data, but more a critique of the methods that were employed or that were used mm -hmm. to argue for multiple species. You know, I don't recall every aspect of their critique because there were multiple aspects, mm -hmm. but for example, in the initial paper that was done, there was a special type of cluster analysis that they did that requires at the outset that you specify the number of clusters that you're looking to recover. And uh, it's called a K-means cluster analysis. So you tell the algorithm beforehand, I expect three clusters. Now tell me which of these specimens fit in which three clusters. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, if you're trying to figure out, the question is how many clusters of T how many clusters of Tyrannosaurus are there? You don't know that beforehand. Right. So that would be the wrong analysis to apply. Right. You know, it might be that there's just one cluster, right? And in this case, T Rex. Mm -hmm. uh, if you specify three clusters at the outset, then basically you've effectively made up your mind. You're mm -hmm. not letting the data tell you. You're not letting the data tell you what it wants to do. You're telling the data right. what you want. That was one of the arguments that, that was made that uh, this is just the wrong type of analysis for this type of question. Mm -hmm. so, you know, and there were other aspects uh, and, and arguments that were made as well. Mm -hmm. I actually reviewed the initial paper that, that claiming to name two new species of Tyrannosaurus. And to be honest with you, that was one of my original complaints about the paper too was that they used the mm -hmm. wrong analysis and somehow it still got through uh, <laughs> it's exciting stuff and i'm sure that i'm sure the, the rebuttal paper came from very busy people who who found the passion to go and and spend the extra time to, to, to publish again because tyrannosaurus is a yeah. popular popular color. well yeah it, it is and that's why i think it garnered a a pushback often if you know, if this were a, a paper claiming to erect a new species of, I don't know, uh, iguanodon or something like that, mm -hmm. yeah, even if most people disagreed with it, the paper would just be forgotten and never would have been picked up by the press anyways, mm -hmm. in, in all like. But just because T-Rex is a, a public favorite and popular among, you know, the Joe Schmoes out there, it, it, it garnered uh, a lot of press when it came out, and, and as a result, it garnered a very strong feedback or, or, or strong rebuttal from the scientists, too. So Yes, um, they weren't fighting over Nanosaurus and Laosaurus. They were fighting over something a little bit more well-known. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. T-Rex is a, is a, is everyone's favorite, of course. And so <laughs> it, it gets attention when people try and split them up. So when can we expect a third paper that suggests that there should be maybe just only two groups like the Emperagina or the Regina Tor or something like that instead of... <laughs> if there's one coming, I don't know of it, but you know, th this talk about the possibility of there being multiple species of Tyrannosaurus mm -hmm. has been bouncing, bouncing around in the literature for uh, decades now. I want to say probably 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. The problem has been just amassing a data set to show it. And although these authors, led by Gregory Paul, made an argument based on a good amount of data, I wouldn't say that for the majority of dinosaur researchers, or certainly Tyrannosaur research, researchers that it was enough data you know i think it, everyone's willing to entertain the fact that there's multiple species of tyrannosaurus out mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. you just need good data to show it and and i 
don't think that Gregory Paul and his colleagues mustered the amount of data that it would take to convince most, certainly most Tyrannosaur researchers, yeah. basically all of whom <laughs> were on this, uh, this re rebuttal paper. <laughs> yeah, certainly there would have been differences that perhaps weren't um, seen in the bone or seen in, the, you know, when you find a species. I don't know what the, the skeletal differences between a gray squirrel and a red squirrel are. Well, I'm sure there's some, or a gray squirrel and a black squirrel, but they're certainly different. They just <laughs> may not look Well, it's different. tricky with the fossil record, yeah. too, because yeah. as you imply, we're talking about two species belonging to the same genus and sometimes you can only tell modern species apart based on the color of their fur coats or something like that and the actual skeletal characters distinguishing them are either non-existent or very very subtle well try translating that to the fossil record where you're trying to discern subtle characters on fossilized bones that have gone through the ringer Mm -hmm. uh, being in the rock record for 60 some odd million years yeah plus on top of that you've got you know weathering and breakage to have to worry about these bones often get glued back together in the mm -hmm. lab and there's possibly some amount of interpretation there on how these things actually go together so it's not an easy thing you know you don't have pristine bone and so trying to discern very subtle characters that would allow you to tell two species apart isn't always easy. Right. I was just that. I was just joking with my son about the difficulties of putting together just the bones in the right order for a plesiosaur flipper. Like some of these things just look uh, like th rocks thrown on the ground, and but they're in order, and that's how the, the fingers go in this flipper here. And it's I can't imagine how it's, some of the detail that goes into these the finer the finer points in, in some of these re, you know reconstructions work. It's incredible. Yeah, it, it, and it's tricky with fossil reptiles like plesiosaurs and dinosaurs, mm -hmm. and you name it. Reptile bones are fairly amorphous, I guess, if you could say that. They don't, have, they don't often have a, a nice chiseled shape to them the way, say, the uh, hind limb bones of a horse would. They don't have great articular ends to them. They were often, their ends were often very heavily covered in, in uh, cartilage which is missing, of course, by and large from the fossil record. Oh. Often these bones come out looking rather blocky and it's it's not always obvious how they, they go together. Certainly not compared to the nicely shaped and chiseled bones, let's say, of a, of a mammal, of an ungulate, a hooved mammal, or a, maybe even a bird, really. Often you get a lot of stories, it seems like there's a lot of conversation anyhow around this concept of lumping and splitting different species. And of course, when we spoke last time, we were talking about keeping the Taurosaurus and the Triceratops apart. There has to be more than just arguing, that, hey, that we need a new name or we need fewer names. There must be, what new is learned about the, the dinosaurs? What new you know, information is derived from what turns out being the result is as these are distinct species, but there must be more to more to knowledge that is learned than just saying, uh, we've identified that these are separate, but that must mean more in some some way. What what more is gained by identifying that uh, these two things that we believed were the same are suddenly different? It's that's a good question, because it's it's more than just stamp collecting. Although <laughs> some people are some people are happy to do that all day, just memorize all the all the dinosaur names, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was like that maybe as a as a high school kid who didn't know much about the science per se, but no, it's about it's about more than that because at the end of the day, one of the things that interests paleontologists is the extinction of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And 
how we understand the extinction of the dinosaurs is greatly impacted by the diversity of dinosaurs that there were at the time of the extinction. Um, and so obviously, if you tend towards lumping species together under one species name, then you would might tend to think that there were fewer species of dinosaurs that went extinct 66 million years ago. Whereas okay. if you're a splitter, you, you would see that extinction as being uh, much more devastating. And that's true, not just of the, the extinction of the dinosaurs, but true across all five mass extinctions that the Earth's seen. And, and, uh, and every other extinction that we've seen too, there have been, mm. there have been you know, extinction's been a, a, a part of uh, the natural world uh, since time immemorial. So mm. yeah, the way we understand dinosaur taxonomy, how many species were there, affects our understanding of things like rates of diversification in the fossil record and, and rates of, of extinction. So mm -hmm. it's an important thing. It's, it, it's not an end to itself, but our interpretations of how many species were there feeds into all kinds of other interesting questions okay. about the evolution of life. That's very interesting because yeah. I understand that uh, a greater biodiversity generally indicates a healthier ecosystem when you have more things that are able to coexist or something like that. I've heard that. Whereas if you have many few, fewer, that is generally an indication of something is unhealthy and uh, it's likely to become even fewer and fewer as a result. Uh, generally speaking, yes, that's true. If you've got a, if you've got a, an ecosystem with very few species in them, then uh, you only need to wipe out one or two of those species and the whole thing collapses. Whereas if you've got a diverse ecosystem with multiple species filling very different roles, well, if you take one species out, well, maybe it'll have cascading effects, but, but more than likely it won't. And, and you'll have other species that are able to maybe come in and fill those vacant niches or something like that. So mm -hmm. yes, it's generally understood that more more diverse uh, ecosystems tend to hold together a little, mm -hmm. a little better, I guess you could say. When we, like I said, we spoke, uh, you've you done a lot of inspection upon the Taurosaurus and the Triceratops to distinguish their similarities and their commonalities and, and what makes them distinct among, uh, between them in your, in your perspective. So it would be fun to go over some of the, the coolest things about the Triceratops. We know the Triceratops is in the book. We know that it likes to charge land, uh, the, the Jeeps if they don't have a red stripe on them. We're told that they put a red stripe on the Jeep that keeps the Triceratops remember from, that. from fighting them. Uh, but that's all we really get from Triceratops in the book, although Triceratops gets to be amazing in... For a stationary animal, amazing in the film. I, I've heard a bunch of really neat stuff about Triceratops that makes it, one of, you know, in terms of trivia, a wonderful animal to... to you know, impress your friends with. What are some of the best things about Triceratops, in your opinion? <laughs> well, one thing that comes to mind is just how darn big the thing is. Mm -hmm. I remember my first time seeing a Triceratops skeleton. I, I grew up in Ottawa, where I am right now, and I grew up visiting the Canadian Museum of Nature, where I'm working right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, growing up, we had our Styracosaurus was on display, and it still is today. And there was an Ankyceratops on display, and there was... Uh, our Chasmosaurus were not on display back then, although they had been in decades prior. But all this is to say is these are fairly average-sized uh, horned dinosaurs, and those are the ones that I grew up learning about and loving. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I went to my first Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting down in St. Paul, Minnesota. I was an undergraduate then, 
I want to say it was 2004, maybe 2003, 2004, something like that. And they've got a big Triceratops <laughs> um, play in their Natural History Museum there. And it blew me away how big it was compared to all the other yeah. horned dinosaurs that I was familiar with. And so to me, when I think of Triceratops, I just remembered the first time seeing that skeleton uh, down in, in St. Paul and just being blown away by how massive it was. Mm -hmm. That's really, I think, what's most interesting about it to me is, yeah. and that's true, not just of, of Triceratops, but it's contemporaries as well. Mm -hmm. um, Triceratops lived at the same time as Ankylosaurus, which is the largest member of its family. And Triceratops lived alongside uh, T-Rex, which is the largest member of its family as well. So um, I, I think that's another interesting aspect of not just Triceratops, but its entire ecosystem is by the end of the Cretaceous <laughs> period, you're evolving the largest members, the largest ankylosaurs, horned dinosaurs, tyrannosaurs, which is, which is an interesting... An interesting thing to puzzle over. And those are the North American versions too, like so that that kind of northwestern area that we have now is where some of those they were really peaking, as opposed to I don't know that they're as quite as large in in like the Asia. Were the ankylosaurs that big? Were the ceratopsians? They weren't so big over in Asia at the same time, were they? Not that. Not no. as big as Triceratops, and not as big. Well. Hard to say about the ankylosaurus. I'm actually working on an ankylosaur with some Chinese colleagues right now, and mm -hmm. I can't say too too much about it. Fair enough. But it's massive. Yeah. And, okay. And um, possibly even as big as ankylosaurus, which is quite interesting, although it lived well before. Oh. But generally speaking, yeah, North America's got some of the biggest members of many dinosaur groups. Certainly mm -hmm. not all. No. Oh, the big titanosaurs. There was a large one that ranged up into North America at the end of the Cretaceous, Alamosaurus. But uh, the other big long-necked titanosaurs are primarily known from down in South America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as far as the horned dinosaur is concerned, um, Triceratops was the biggest, and it lived here in North America. The modern mythology that I've heard, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that Triceratops, when you take all of that bone and you look at its head, it had one of the most massive skulls. Uh, that we know of. Uh, how does that, I mean, in, in terms of like tip to tip, weighing all of that, that bone, all that rock, how does that weigh out? I mean, it wouldn't have been the, the longest or anything like that, but when you factor in all the horns and everything, how does that, how does that weigh against the others? Yeah, in life, I couldn't tell you. I, I, I'm sure you could work it out. You know, <laughs> we, we can calculate the volume of these things and and we can apply the density of bone and figure that out. I, I collected a horned dinosaur skull via helicopter back in 2017 <laughs> on the South Saskatchewan River in Alberta. And we collected, it was, it was a Chasmosaurus skull, and after we got it wrapped up in the jacket, the jacket itself weighed something like 1,600 pounds. So it was quite heavy, and uh, I mean, there was a lot of rock in there too, but you know, if I had to guess, I would guess if you lopped off the head of a Triceratops, maybe if a T-Rex ate it off or something like that, it would probably weigh, oh, it would easily weigh a couple hundred pounds probably, yeah, uh, if not a few hundred pounds. That'd be, that'd be my guess anyways. That's fascinating. And so I understand too that, the, that for it to have a solid frill, that that was tremendously 
uncommon among the, the Ceratopsians. There couldn't have been too many like that, although there must have been some as they became, like eventually became Triceratops. There must have been some in the in, in the fossil record, but for a shield that would probably preserve better than one that was, uh, you know, had the had the Fenestra, they're, they're still kind of unique among that one animal, almost, almost right? Yeah, Triceratops is weird in that it's, you know, we, we, we typically view Triceratops as being like the classic horned dinosaur, mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of an archetype almost for a horned dinosaur, and yet it was, it was a weird one, and in that it was so huge, and in that uh, it solidifies its frill, uh, or, or has a solid frill. Most other horned dinosaurs that we know of, and we know of many dozens of species now, mm-hmm. they all have these big, what are called fenestrae, or openings, windows, basically, in the frill uh, behind their heads. Triceratops doesn't do that. Triceratops has a very thick frill, and it's solid. And it does thin out, you know, um, this has been part of the argument made about Triceratops becoming the so-called Taurosaurus morph as it ages, because you can look at Triceratops frills and see that as they develop, Mm -hmm. the bone on the inside of the frill starts to thin out a little bit. And it's been argued that ultimately it thins out to such a point that it develops these openings in the frill. I, I, I think that's an interesting argument. I don't think it's a particularly good argument just because where the, the, the bone thins doesn't tend to be where you find the fenestrae that mm. open up in the frill of, of Taurosaurus. But it does thin out with age, and who knows why that was. It might just be a weight-saving measure. As I say, if the, yeah. the head of Triceratops probably weighed uh, several hundred pounds, and so if that's the case, you're going to want to lose weight wherever you can shed it, and that might have been in thinning out the, the bone of of the frill. So one of the other things I heard, because the, the frill is so solid and that there's so much of it, and because it's a late Cretaceous animal, which means it would have been in the ground the least amount of time relative to other dinosaurs, um, that its fossil remains are one of the most abundant species that are found. Is Does that sound true? Or, or could you, <laughs> is that, or maybe that's just another myth? Well, uh, it, it's true to an extent. Okay. Uh, it's true that if you go to the places where you would find dinosaurs from the end of the Cretaceous period. I'm thinking of the Hell Creek Formation in Montana or the Frenchman Formation in Saskatchewan where I worked or, you know, the Lance Formation in the, you know, in the Dakotas. And if in in that area, it's true that you will find Triceratops primarily. You do find duck-billed dinosaurs and you find Tyrannosaurus too, but certainly, you know, where I've worked in the Frenchman Formation in Southern Saskatchewan, you find two things primarily in my mm-hmm. experience, Triceratops and turtles. Okay. And Triceratops was, without a doubt, very abundant on the landscape. And But there's also a certain bias that tends to favor its preservation. And this is a bias that we see throughout much of the, the fossil record. And that is that we, particularly where you're preserving fossils in ancient uh, riverbeds and, and associated deposits, there tends to be a bias against animals of small body size. And the reason being, you know, well, multiple reasons. First of all, if you're a T-Rex and uh, you're going to eat a small, oh, I don't know, uh, a small uh, juvenile hadrosaur or something like that, mm-hmm. you're probably going to be able to eat the whole darn thing in one bite. <laughs> and so there's not going to be any chances of it being left in the fossil record. But also, if you bury a small skeleton or... or 
if you leave a small skeleton to rot on, on the surface of the ground, um, it's going to be scattered more easily by whatever little scavengers there are there. Um, and if, if that skeleton washes into a riverbed where we tend to preserve these things, um, it's more likely that the movement of the water will scatter the bones. Whereas if you're burying a big skeleton, or if you've got a big skeleton on the ground, it's probably not going to become scattered quite over quite as large an area because those bones are heavy. And so it's harder to drag a hind limb away by a, yeah. by a scavenger. And it's harder to wash one downstream. And so the bigger bones tend to stay behind. And so we definitely see that reflected in the fossil record where you, you get a you know, we have a good idea of what were the big animals that lived during the age of the dinosaurs, but we have yet a poor understanding of the smaller species mm -hmm. that were around at that time. And a triceratops skull basically looks like an anchor, so it's not going to wash away. <laughs> Those things are big, yeah, and especially their, their skulls, you know. Their skulls are big, complex things, and yeah, they don't move around too easily. If you've got a skull laying on the ground, that was arguably the biggest bone in the animal's body. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, bo a skull is made up of many bones, but in an adult, you fuse all those bones together. It would be hard to move one. They've got, yeah, big, they've got those big brow horns that would tend to dig into the ground and, and prevent the skull from going anywhere. So, yeah, I suspect those uh, tend to lag behind uh, quite a bit, and I do think we see that as a result in the types of fossils we find in those latest Cretaceous sediments. All right, let's move on to, to maybe some dinosaur names. We have suddenly uh, lost our, our, uh, our, our lust for the Tyrannosaurus Imperator and the Regina, um, but uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't tons of really fun dinosaur names. You got to name one. What is some of the story that goes behind naming the Spiclipius? And, and did you have any other, like, other names around the back burner? Like, oh, these could work too? Or, or How do you make the decisions and... Yeah, what's some of the story behind that? If you've got any fun stories on like other of your favorite names that have come out of the, you know, some of your colleagues or something like that, what would have been some of your favorites out there? Well, Spiclipius is a tongue twister, I'll admit it. And yet I've heard many people say they really like it. I've heard other people say they hate the name. Well, it sounds Thank like a fans, Roman warrior, it, you know? Yeah, the name, uh, the name is Latin for spiked shield. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually remember the day I came up with the name. It was a Saturday morning, and uh, I was sitting in front of the TV with my laptop in my lap, as I often do. I was up early having my coffee, and I was just trying to think of names for this new animal. And I'd come up with a list, all relating to the shape of the frill on the, well, the shape of the frill on the back of the head. None of the names, as far as I was concerned, were especially sounded great <laughs> and i was I, and i was trying to lean away from uh, this trend of naming every horned dinosaur prefix ceratops yeah. um, we don't have to call everything every horned dinosaur something ceratops so i wanted to go with something a little more original so yeah spiclipius i thought kind of had a nice ring to it despite what some people might say so the last name is shikorum which was named after uh, Bill Ship and his family. Bill is the man who actually discovered the the fossil on his land down in Montana. He was a Bill, a great guy, and and he's actually a, a nuclear physicist by training. Mm -hmm. He's he's retired now because he's got a scientific background. He was interested in being a co-author on the paper, which I would have been totally happy with. But I said, Bill, if 
if you're willing to not put your name on the paper, I would be happy okay. to name this fossil after you and your family. And I guess he thought that would be a greater honor. <laughs> so he, he went that route. There aren't many rules when it comes to naming new species, but one of the rules uh, is that you don't name it after yourself. Mm. That's, that's, a, that's a no-no. And so that's why Bill's name wasn't on the paper, because we wouldn't have been able to name it after him otherwise. But uh, Diclipius <laughs> Shaporm ultimately became the name, and I think it has a good ring to it. I could just see George Foreman working at the uh, International... Uh, zoological nom nomenclature place and everything's just George the first, George the second, George the third. <laughs> George, you're out. We we can't. That's not the rules. So I've got a couple. I've got a couple neat Jurassic Park names uh, of dinosaurs that are uh, that honor the novel Jurassic Park, and one honors the movie. Are you familiar with these? Yeah. Well, I know there has been um, uh, like there's Crichtonsaurus, yeah. which was named after, of course, Michael Crichton which is an ankylosaur from, from China. And I know of another one whose name isn't coming to me right now that was named after several of the characters from the novel. All right, I got it here. You want it? If you could pronounce it, I would be you would get all the awards because it's crazy. So it's, I don't think I could. It's Tianchisaurus. Yeah. Ned Ego uh, Peferima, where Tian is, I guess, Chinese for heavenly... Cheese for it's Chinese for lake or pool, and then Soros is lizard. But then <laughs> the scientific name honors Jurassic Park actor Sam Neill. So the N E is for Neil, D E is for Dern, G O is for Goldblum. Attenberg only gets the A. <laughs> then Robert Peck, who is uh, Muldoon, I believe, is P E. Martin Ferrero, who is Gennaro, uh, gets the F E. The R I is for Ariana Richards, who is Lex, and then the M A is for Joseph Mazzello, who is. Uh, little Tim, the human piece of toast. So that final name is Neto Joa Peferima or something like that. And I don't know if that ever wound up being a valid species or not, but somebody went out there and did that uh, in China. <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I think that was Dong Ming, if I'm not mistaken, who named, named that, who was one of China's most prolific uh, dinosaur researchers. Uh, yeah, I couldn't tell you about the, uh, the validity of that species name, how widely accepted it is um off the top of my head but uh I, I also can't think of another example where that's been done before where someone has just taken a few letters from people's yeah. last names and smushed them all together into one well they must have loved the movie oh, it came that public paper was published in 93 probably yeah. hot off the heels of the movie and then in 1999 there was a chinese ankylosaur Crichtonsaurus, um yeah. followed by in another chinese ankylosaur named Crichton pelta in 2007. This movie must have been very influential in China. <laughs> yeah. uh, I suspect it, it, it was, and I, you know, I think that's true of the world around. It had a, the, the movie, Jurassic Park had a big impact on, you know, dinomania. Mm -hmm. and however many kids saw this thing back in 93, you know, wanted to grow up to be, work on dinosaurs. I, I was one of them, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so it, it brought up a lot of attention to paleontology. It, to a certain extent, it brought in some more money. I wouldn't say paleontologists were suddenly swimming in it, but dinosaur researchers certainly benefited from the attention that Jurassic Park got and that it brought to 
the field of paleontology. So um, I think it's only right that uh, that be recognized in the naming of, of certain dinosaur species, mm-hmm. sure. And I got one more. Uh, there's only one American species. Do you know the Cedrorestes Crichtoni? It was named in U- yes, 2001. Yes. That's an Ankylopelexian. And you'd have to tell me yeah. what the difference between an Ankylopelexian and a Styracosternin might be. <laughs> they, they are not, despite the name, they are not ankylosaurs. Right. <laughs> uh, think of something, if you're familiar with Iguanodon, mm-hmm. it, would, it would look something a little like that. Yes, so ankylopelexine means like stiff thumb or something like that, right? Yeah, it refers. Yeah, the, the polex refers to the thumb. Okay, so that would be the, like the very, very much the iguanodon shape. So how does that styracosternins seem to also be very iguanodon-like, but they are distinct? And I, is there a big difference between what makes something an an ankylopelexian or a styracosternin? Uh, I... I don't work specifically on that area, and so I have to go back and remind myself about the characters that distinguish the groups, but uh, mm-hmm. they would be rather detailed, yeah. complex anatomy that probably isn't worth getting into right now. So but, it's a small difference. Yeah, I have to go back and remind myself. I've looked at it, and I just it sounds like two people are using different words to talk about the same thing, and and maybe, I don't, but there's well, certainly you know, not, that, but it's tricky. That... You're you're not far off in saying that. I mean, that does often happen in in, in anatomy and paleontology, where people use different terms to refer to the same thing. It might be different uh, different names for the same group of animals, or different names for the same bones. Often, you know, as scientists, as, as science um, becomes further and further and further subdivided, right? Is Dinosaur researchers work on specialize on different groups, or vertebrate paleontologists specialize on on different groups. Um, we tend to develop certain words to refer to certain features on certain bones, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes you might see the same feature across two different groups that that have uh, two different names, and yet apparently refer to the same thing. That's something we come across all the time, and like looking at human anatomy and avian anatomy and reptile anatomy, there's often all these different terms for the same feature, which mm-hmm. can be quite confusing when you're trying to sort of uh, parse the literature and figure out, especially as a student, what these things are. I feel like um, with iguanodon or iguanodontids or ankyloplexians or styracosternids that um, you would get this when it, uh, you get a, a, a fossil record that gives you a lot of data to work with. And probably in different parts of the world, and so I, I feel like Iguanodon was very uh, successful, and that uh, its ancestors would be scattered all over. And maybe this is a way where, where people in different uh, cliques are, are pursuing information be, and looking at the finer and finer details because they get more and more things to work with as uh, as they reveal uh, more samples out from the Earth. So that could be an interesting way to, uh, problem. Oh, that yeah. has too much too well, much information. I mean, Iguanodon. Iguanodon itself is is um, is specific to uh, Europe, but it is true that there are iguanodontids uh, found all over uh, the world. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know specifically that this is a case of people singing from uh, different hymnals or what have you. But um, that is often something we see in not just dinosaur research but paleontology generally. It's, uh, people using two different words to mean the same thing. 
you know, I, I, one example I'm thinking of is uh, I do work a bit on uh, duck-billed dinosaurs, being that we have them here in Canada. Uh, often you'll hear uh, talk of landiosaurines, uh, or sorry, I should say hadrosaurines and okay. saurolophians. By and large, those two words refer to the same group of dinosaurs. If you want to get really, really technical about it, one might be one might include one species more than the other. Okay. By and large, refer to basically the exact same thing, and and so you'll often see those two terms, uh, hadrosaurinae and saurolophinae, referred to in the literature. Um, meaning the same thing based basically yeah they're used interchangeably is what i'm trying to say all right yeah well talking a little bit more about lumping and splitting and also names um over time we have lost one of the dinosaurs to lumping in jurassic park one of them was synonymized out of existence i was going to do a bit of a dig into the othnelia and it turns out they lost their name they have now been reclassified as nanosaurus and so uh the lumping suggests that there were four species one was called drinker one was called othnelia and a third was Othnelosaurus, and they were all described yes. to be eventually the same animal, which was initially described as Nanosaurus. And this is neat, because this is really, really interesting with the, uh, the Cope and Marsh uh, debates here. <laughs> so the Nanosaurus was described by Marsh, Othniel Charles Marsh, and then Drinker, Othnelia, and Othnelosaurus came afterwards. Other than the Nanosaurus, it looks like there's a, a Peter Galton, who was a involved in some way in naming the Othnelia, the Drinker, and the Othnelosaurus. And then he named two of them honoring Othniel Charles Marsh, the Othnelia and the Othnelosaurus. And then the third was honoring Marsh's famous arch-rival, Edward Drinker Cope. And so Nanosaurus is now named in honor of both Cope and Marsh at some point. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and now they're just called Nanosaurus named by Marsh. So there must be some higher... You know, metaphoric meaning out there about whatever that means, but <laughs> I just thought it's interesting we get this one animal that was named in honor of uh, two arch rivals uh, unknowingly, and then they they've been synonymized. But that's how lumping and splitting works, right? <laughs> Often the the reason why these things happen is just the due to the nature of the fossil record. You know, there's a lot of gaps, and so. You know, person A might find uh, a, a toe bone of an animal and give it a name, and person B might find a thigh bone and give it a different name. And only later, when we find more complete examples, do we realize that the, that toe bone and that thigh bone actually go together in the same animal. Or you might get an example where, and this happened a lot with uh, the duckbill dinosaurs, where you know, way back when in the 1910s and 1920s when paleontologists were first finding these things in, in the West, they would find, of course, nice big uh, duck-billed dinosaur skulls and they would find smaller duck-billed dinosaur skulls. And the thinking then was, well, we've got a big species and we've got a small species, so we'll give them two different names. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, as, as we came to learn more and more and study more of the living animal record, you realize, oh, shoot, you know, animals change shape and change size as they grow up, right? And, and so probably this was work done by a colleague of mine, Peter Dodson, back in the 70s. Peter went back and looked at a lot of these lambiosaurine. We've got too many names here. A lot of, a lot of these look to be just younger versions of, of the grown-ups. And so uh, we, we're talking about many fewer species uh, as a result, paleontologists had been correcting those 
<laughs> those similar mistakes now for, for decades. And I have no doubt that we're still making those mistakes, hopefully less often, less frequently. Hopefully we've learned our lesson, but that's just the nature of the fossil record. It's, it's incomplete and, uh, you know, you don't know the full, what, what we'd call an ontogenetic span of, mm. a, of a particular species or, or a, I guess a more common way of saying that would be like a growth series. We don't know what the growth series mm. was like until we find it. So, um, yeah, we make mistakes and the benefit of science is that you're allowed to correct them and, um, and we learn hopefully as a result. Have you seen the Dino Dana movie released in 2020? I did not see the movie, no, although I was involved with some of the the marketing surrounding it. Okay, very, cool. very, very, very little bit, but yeah, sadly, the, we were supposed to get the, mu the, the movie at my museum here, and then COVID hit, and for, I don't know the, the yeah. reasons why it was dropped, but uh, COVID had something to do with it. Well, the whole story was about lumping in a way, and uh, and how dinosaurs look different as they grow up, and as they do, they do a charming job of having a Tyrannosaurus and a Nanotyrannus work together, and then a Pachycephalosaurus and a Dracorex and a Stygimolic all work together because they're all members of the same family. That's why they weren't fighting each other. And the kids learn, uh, though they may look different, the family is family, and there isn't a dry eye in the house when the credits roll. So it was very well done. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, now I guess I have to see it. Eh? Well, it's definitely worth it. I watched it three times <laughs> because, uh -huh. because of the kids, of course. So <laughs> do you keep an ear particularly perked when, when arguments for pachycephalosaurs and tyrannosaurus synonymization, uh, you know, when they're going on because of you're, you're also kind of publishing in that sphere as well? I follow it uh, without, you know, without. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I, I keep an open ear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. um, I, I don't tend to delve too much into that that literature but uh no it's a the you know as far as which species is which i i i personally don't find all that interesting i can mm -hmm. i think what's more interesting is the arguments that are used to prop up one position or another because those translate across across taxa right mm -hmm. Um, across uh, different groups of animals so that's what i find interesting and so for that reason uh I am interested in these debates about how many Tyrannosaurus are there or how many Pachycephalosaurus. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, say hypothetically you found a two-year-old animal, like a, like a type of hadrosaur, like a, like a Gryposaurus skull, and, uh, and you know what, then what it looks like as an infant. Uh, would you be able to eliminate other small hadrosaurs from existence by lumping them into this now clearly identified Gryposaurus two-year-old? Yeah, earlier. well, it's funny you should mention young Gryposaurus because I literally just published a paper on. Did you really? Young, uh, yeah, yeah. Did you read it? Sounds like you did. <laughs> Last month, I I described a small Gryposaurus out of our collections, the youngest yet known, and it was probably yeah, it was probably two years old or mm -hmm. so. And it's identifiable even at that young age as a Gryposaurus because it does have some of the features that we do see in adult Gryposaurus. Mm -hmm. Like the arch on the nose is just starting to form. It's very small, but it's there. And yet there's other features about it that were quite unlike the adults. For example, on the teeth. Um, if you look at the teeth of an adult Gryposaurus, you know, hadrosaur teeth are quite distinctive. And if you look at them in on the external surface, they have this what we call the uh, primary ridge that runs down the 
the enamel surface of the tooth. It's very distinct. You know when you see it. It's basically a vertical ridge that runs down the enamel surface of the tooth. Whereas other hadrosaur species, Gryposaurus has just a, a, that primary ridge. Other hadrosaur species will have a primary ridge and smaller, what we call secondary ridges on either side. And this is a character that we thought we could use to tell different species apart. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out in this young Gryposaurus that we've got, that it's got a primary ridge and it has those secondary ridges as well, okay. which we now think disappear with age as the animal grows up and it continues to replace its teeth. At some point in development, it loses those secondary ridges. And so, and so we think now, we're starting to think that the presence or absence of those secondary ridges on the teeth might, might not be as informative taxonomically it might not allow us to identify or tell species apart quite as well as what we might have thought. Mm. And so, you know, we use this as an argument, uh, arguing against the validity of a duck-billed dinosaur found on a north slope of Alaska called a Grunaluk. Okay. Um, this animal was first found in bone beds back in old 60s, I think it was. They first found the, the first Edmontosaur material up there. It was initially thought to be of an animal called Edmontosaurus. And relatively recently, in the last five or 10 years or so, another group of researchers came along and said, well, it can't be Edmontosaurus because Edmontosaurus doesn't have these secondary ridges on its teeth. And, and the, the Alaskan Edmontosaurus material does have secondary ridges. And, and one thing that needs to be said is all of those Alaskan Edmontosaurus are quite small in body size. They're juveniles, very clearly. So, and here we have a case of uh, juvenile Gryposaurus, which also has secondary ridges as a young animal and then loses them with age. Mm. And so it might be, there might be a parallel there where this thing that we were calling a Grunaluk is just a young form of Edmontosaurus uh, that, that also would have lost the secondary ridges on its teeth with age. So I would argue that there's a parallel there and, and that maybe these very specific features on the teeth that I'm referring to aren't of, of much use. So yeah, that's the, the benefit of, of describing mm. more than one example of a species is you can learn, you know, if you, if you describe a growth series of these things, you can learn how they change with growth and, mm -hmm. and that can inform you about uh, how likely it is that two different specimens may or may not be two different species. Mm -hmm. And if they turn out to be the same, maybe that means there's like a geographic connectivity that was perhaps. Oh what, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of ecological. Fossil yeah, species are, are great for informing us about. Fossil species are great to tell us about um, biogeography, right? And and which continents were were connected when. Um, so, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, we're getting. Geez, we're running out of time. I'll ask you one more question. I don't know if if ten minutes is enough to 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 do this uh, properly but uh maybe we can get into phylogenetic mapping many of the like chronological and biological assumptions on animals benefit from work that's done in phylogenetic mapping Crichton brings it up in uh in a chapter on the tour with dr wu and wu says that they will extract the dna of an animal and then they will identify the species on the dna they extract they do it in two two ways either they grow it to see what it is and that's kind of presented as the lazy way where they're not doing their due diligence to just kind of grow whatever it is. And then the other way was that they, they put it in, they do 
phylogenetic analysis to find out where this DNA fits in the scheme of dinosaurs before they grow it out, which has a lot of trouble with it. While I've got a very, let's say, user-friendly concept of how phylogenetic mapping works, uh, the technical side that puts together the, you know, the science and the technology, uh, I don't understand that at all. But like, I can put a pizza pop in the oven, but I don't know how the microwave works or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I call this dinosaur microwave the phylogenetic analysis machine, and it amazingly reveals where an animal falls in the tree of life through what I can only say is wizardry. What goes into making a phylogenetics analysis machine? Who has these things, and how reliable are the results? Yeah, a, ph a phylogenetic analysis is just a way of creating a family tree mm -hmm. of animals, of individuals. You could do a phylogenetic analysis of, in my case, the Malin family mm -hmm. and figure out who is related to who. Um, and, and the way we do that uh, varies. How you reconstruct that family tree varies. Traditionally, the way it has been done has been to look at the anatomy of uh, different organisms. And when you're reconstructing a family tree, you would look for shared similarities, common similarities uh, that would inform you about who is related to who, right? So I, I look uh, much more similar to my sibling than I do to my third cousin, right? Maybe we have, uh, I don't know, the, the same hair color or the, the same height and we have the same shape of our nose. Mm -hmm. And so those shared characters that, that we have in common would go towards arguing that we have a close relationship with one another. And, and so we, we can apply that to the fossil records. We, looked at all kind, we look at all kinds of various features of the bones and uh, we, we create these big, what are called character matrices. So mm -hmm. we have going across the top of, the, of the, the spreadsheet, let's call it, we've got all these different uh, characters that we might look for, presence and absence of this feature on the, on the humerus or, or the shape of this feature on the nasal bone or something like that. And then going down the side, the rows, we might have a listing of all the different species that we're looking at. And then we can code as zeros, ones, twos, and threes if we need to. Um, the shared features um, among all those different species. And then you plug that big data set into a piece of software that will spit out a family tree at you and, and show you those relationships. You know, species A is paired off closely with species B because it's got all these features in common. Mm to the exclusion of all the other species. And so we can do that with, with fossil taxa based on uh, the anatomy, the morphology. Uh, but more and more among living animals, we are relying on the DNA. Wow. And so wow. DNA, of course, is, is made up of, uh, you know, guanine, thymine, cytosine, and adenine, AT, GC. And we can look at those repeating uh, patterns, those repeating characters, to tell us about how closely related species are. It, it, it's very similar principle. And so we can look at the genome of all these different taxa and, and notice that close related species have great lengths of their genome in common. And so we can plug the genome basically into, or, or certain genes in most cases, parts of genes, into these same phylogenetic programs and they will spit out 
phylogenetic trees at us, family trees at us. Hmm. And, and so, you know, in the case of the dinosaurs, what Crichton's talking about in the book, I mean, if you were to create a dinosaur, you wouldn't know offhand, if you, you know, creating the first one, you wouldn't know where it would fall out in the dinosaur family tree because we have no baseline against which to compare its DNA, right? Yeah. So in that case, you just have to grow the damn thing and and uh, figure out what you've got. But I suppose, this is all hypothetical, of course. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that if you were able to, you know, grow out 20 or 30 species of dinosaur, and then you've got the next one coming along that, you, that you're about to grow, you want to know what it is before you you grow it before mm -hmm. you develop the thing. And so you do a quick check of its DNA barcode against the background of dinosaurs that you've already grown. And then you could figure out where it fits in that tree. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this is all hypothetical. We don't know anything about dinosaur DNA no, no. just because the damn thing doesn't <clears throat> preserve. So. Yes. But if we if it did preserve and we were to do that, that's probably about how we'd go about it. From what, what everything I could tell is that DNA just will not fossilize. There have been bits th that I hear they've found in ferns that seem to work out. And there's bits I've heard that they've found in other places. But they're not far from complete and they're far from good. But they're, they're technically, well, they, they are what they are. <laughs> DNA is a very volatile molecule and it, mm. dis it dissolves readily in water. <laughs> and if there's one thing you want to preserve a fossil... Yeah, quite often, not always, but quite often, it's water because water distills the sediment in which you're preserving your animal and allows sediment to percolate down on mm -hmm. top of of the carcass that you want to bury. You can, there are other ways of burying carcasses too, but certainly the dinosaur fossil record we owe by and large to the effects of rivers and you know seasides and, and what have you, mm -hmm. lakes. Um, and so if you're going to bury a dinosaur in water, um, good, say goodbye to the DNA. Yeah, DNA's got a very short lifespan. Um, I think the oldest fossils that we have DNA recovered from are now on the order of, of uh, tens of thousands of years. Maybe we're pushing a million now, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. Don't recall off the top of my head, but it's not very long. Yeah. And uh, we have yet to find dinosaur dna and i would be surprised if we ever found any in my lifetime and even if we did it would just be a very very small chunk mm -hmm. and it would tell you very likely it would tell you absolutely nothing about <laughs> where they fit in the family tree we have to go about that the old-fashioned way again looking at anatomy and what have you well the way you describe it now i think that had jurassic park worked so in a world where jurassic park does work and they had cloned a Tyrannosaurus, a Velociraptor, a Procompsognathus, and a Dilophosaurus. Uh, and they had used patches of modern animals to fill in the gaps. As they discovered new Solurosaurs or new, you know, what are the early theropods called? Like the, the Procompsognathus and Dilophosaurus weren't. Were they Avatheropods? What were the early ones called? They were uh, Ceratosaurus, maybe, is what okay. you're thinking of. They were an early branching group of theropods, the Ceratosaurus, yeah. In any case, maybe maybe there'd be a way to patch some of that Salurosaurian DNA from the Tyrannosaurus and the Velociraptor together just enough to, to find that match instead of using a frog gap and maybe you get a more, just phylogenetically, using a Salurosaurian <laughs> DNA instead of no. a reptile, you know, amphibian DNA, which is completely off the charts. Or, you know, the, the, the Procompsognathus and the Dilophosaurus might be, might be, you know, what 
20 million years apart or something like maybe there's a a better patch to be made there versus using <laughs> whatever they use repeatedly using frog DNA. modern yeah i would yeah. think if you I, I would think that if you've managed to clone you know two dozen species of dinosaurs then mm -hmm. you could probably rely on that database right. of genomics right. to, oh here we go the patches between the triceratops those. and the styracosaurus could have worked nice like they could have found an overlap there maybe surely yeah no that's a that's an absolutely good point right the animals uh <laughs> mating though and changing sex and all the rest of it so uh, i mean i'd be surprised if dinosaurs did that so then you, then you wouldn't have the story <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're just uh, out of time again. Boy, I'd love to talk more and more and more and more about dinosaurs, but I'm happy to come back and, and chat with you about those. All right. Well, I'll hold yeah. you to it again. All right. Well, this has been amazing. I, I truly value all the time I get with you. So I thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. No sweat, Ryan. I uh, had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on again. So a special thanks to Dr. Jordan Mallon for returning to come back and talk about dinosaurs with me and uh, hopefully to your benefit as well. Uh, thanks, Jordan. This week's text is Control, spanning from pages 126 to 133. In a synopsis, as Jurassic Park's employees conclude their demonstration of all their systems of control, Grant and Malcolm find themselves uneasy with the park's approach to controlling living, breathing animals in an artificial setting, which is aiming to recreate a natural park setting. Characters, Dr. Alan Grant. Grant feels irritable about all the computers in the control room. Grant doesn't care that refusing to use computers makes him dated as a researcher. He's stubborn, like a classic boomer. Computers are alien, mystifying machines that make him confused and disheartened. Grant is troubled to hear that the animals are treated like software, instinctively uneasy about it, but cannot say exactly why on 128. When he hears that there are rides in the park, his ears perk up again. That same worrisome nagging in his soul on 131. As a zoo, Grant is all right with Jurassic Park, but as an amusement park, he feels troubled. He doesn't like that idea. Donald Gennaro appears comfortable working with computers on 126. He's interested in the physical containment of the animals in the park on 129, wondering if the animals can get out of their enclosures. Gennaro is continuing to pursue a line of questioning that explains the escaped compi that was biting people in Costa Rica, wondering what would happen if an animal did get off the island on page 130. At the mention of dinosaur diseases, Gennaro becomes worried on 131, and Arnold offers to show Gennaro the Big Rex health records, but Gennaro says, not just now. Gennaro believes everything he's been told and feels like if the system is operating as they say it is, then the park is safe and secure. But his problem is that he believes that the systems are operating as intended. He can't imagine how an animal might possibly escape undetected. When Malcolm says that he's worried that their systems of control are failing, Gennaro doesn't quite understand, but Malcolm holds out on his explanation. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Amongst computers, Malcolm is in his element, we're told on 126. He asks if the counting system has, quote, ever been tested on 128, to which Arnold says, well, in a way, that's not great for Malcolm. As the conversation veers into versions and glitches, Malcolm reins the conversation back to the counting system on 129. Malcolm provokes Arnold to elaborate on all the problems of the park, though the computer and control mechanisms seem to have all the answers. Malcolm summarizes, the entire park can be run from this control room? He asks on 131. Malcolm also inquires about who designed the systems, which we're told is Mr. Nedry. As the tour is about to begin, Malcolm has one last quick quote, research question for Arnold about the compi population. He asks to visually display a study of them as a group by height or weight or whatever on page 132. So Malcolm knows what he's looking for here, right? Based on what Wu told them earlier, that the compies were bred in three batches, he can see that the compi population's data show that the, con that the park's control mechanisms are failing. 
That graph is for a normal bi biological population, which is precisely what Jurassic Park is not. John Arnold. John Arnold is the head engineer, a thin, tense, chain-smoking man of 45 years of age. I went 26. He describes the control mechanisms involved with the animal count. He explains the version numbers, how the animals are tracked, the motion sensors, and physical containment. Arnold says the animals can absolutely not get out of their enclosures. Arnold loves the computer system that Nedry has built, calling it a, quote, hell of a system. And then he reaffirms that, saying it's a hell of a goddamn system on 130. The problems at the park are, quote, endless, says Arnold. They're not concerned that the animals will escape and raise hell on the mainland, but rather diseases in the animals are their biggest concern. Arnold says the entire park can be run from this control room on 131 single-handed. There's that much automation built in. The computer itself can track the animals, feed them, and fill their water troughs for 48 hours without supervision. Arnold sort of introduces Nedry, or at least acknowledges him, and apparently really loves the computer system he's installed, uh, as we mentioned earlier. And Arnold provides Malcolm a height distribution graph of the copies for him to check out visually on 132. Robert Muldoon is just mentioned very briefly. Uh, basically, if an animal escapes, Muldoon says he would go back out into the park and get it. We've got lots of ways to do that. Taser, shotguns, electrified nets, tranquilizers, all non-lethal. And Dennis Nedry. Turns out Nedry was sitting at a terminal in the corner this whole damn time. He's eating a candy bar, of course, and typing away. He doesn't look up from his keyboard to acknowledge the comments, and he says he's working on one or two minor bugs. Tyrannosaurus. Our first impression of the Tyrannosaurus is of the juvenile, also referred to as the, quote, little Rex on 126. He sticks to a specific locality, the southeast side of the lagoon. This is his home range. He stays away from the big adult Rex, we're told on 127, and their paths never cross. That's something you ought to see, the vet scrubbing those big fangs so he doesn't get tooth decay. We're told on page 131. This begs the question later in the book, when they don't know how much to use in a tranquilizer dose on the big Rex, how are they scrubbing her big teeth? Makes you wonder. Othnelia. At one time, uh, one of these little animals was strangled up in a tree on 28. Uh, Stegosaurus is one of these died of an intestinal illness that keeps bothering them, and we'll learn more about this later. Hypsilophodon, one of those fell and broke their neck, we're told on 128. And that wraps up pretty much all the characters. Localities, control. It's a darkened room with many computer monitors. There is a glass vertical map that illuminates with data as requested from a console, and the entire park can be run from this control room. The Tyrannosaur Paddock. The juvenile Tyrannosaur sticks to the southeast side of the lagoon in the Tyrannosaur Paddock. We're told on 126, and the Big Rex stays in the fields northwest of the lagoon. Isla Nublar. The entire island is surrounded by 22 miles of electric fences around its perimeter. The park has a series of, quote, rides, including the Jungle River Ride, where the boats follow tracks underwater, and the Aviary Lodge Ride, but they are not operational yet, we're told on 131. These are tours of different areas and will come online in 6 to 12 months after the park comes open. And finally, the Japanese imagery returns when describing the park, again reaffirming that its design was surely intended to appear Japanese in architectural appearance. Quote, it's a true park, rather like a Japanese formal garden. Nature manipulated to be more natural than the real thing, if you will. And that's a, kind of a, a summarization by Ian Malcolm. Stylistic techniques. We have uh, italics used quite a bit. The italics all seem to be for the purposes of emphasizing uh, a particular part of a sentence so that people will be, you know, people can make their point very clearly. Quote, we have unbelievable control measures, says Arnold on 126. But if one did get out, offers uh, one question, we do worry about the animals dying from their own illnesses or infecting other animals, suggesting that that is a concern that they actually have versus them escaping. Grant looks up sharply. 
Right. That concerns him very much. Uh, but going back to the matter of counting, I take it all the counts are based on motion sensors, asks Ian Malcolm. So he's curious about counting those animals. M dashes. On 129, we've got, but going back to the matter of counting, M dash, I take it all the counts are based on motion sensors. We've got lots of ways to do that. M dash, taser, shotguns, electrified nets, tranquilizers on 130. That's something. M dash, you ought to see the vet scrubbing those big fangs so he doesn't get tooth decay on 131. In all of these cases, it's kind of like they're introducing the subject of the sentence, and then the M dash separates it as they get to the point of the sentence. So it's kind of like a setup and a payoff. Uh, on either sides of this of this M dash, ellipses. They were, after all, living creatures. And uh, ellipses on one twenty eight, and that's Grant kind of still forming a thought, and so the rest of that thought is incomplete, just like the sentences. That's something you ought to see the vet scrubbing those big fangs so he doesn't get tooth decay. Ellipses, as if uh, everyone's being welcomed to envision that on their own. So that ellipses kind of is an invitation uh, for others to, to participate in that thought. And if we wanted to know height or weight or ellipses, and this is Malcolm saying, you know, give me anything. And, uh, and that ellipses is kind of him allowing Wu to imagine any graph of, that he might be able to pull up on a whim. We have a colon. We have a colon here for some reason. Grant looked up sharply. Colon. Rides. I don't know if this is colon used properly or not. Again, he's not making a list of things. It's just kind of separating uh, rides from the rest of the sentence. I, I don't think that that is colon used appropriately. That just seems incorrect. Meta text. Uh, we have another chart presented to us, as we discussed fairly thoroughly in our interview in episode 24, Control, with my guest Ben Lewis. Uh, here, Malcolm is expressly looking for a graphical representation of the compi population. Any expression of that population as a whole will do, height, weight, or anything else, because Malcolm knows what he's looking for. Understanding that the population was bred in three distinct cohorts, and suspicions that this is a particular species has escaped the island, per the compi remains identified by Grant earlier in the novel, Malcolm wants a closer look at the population as a whole. And I guess he finds what he's looking for. Rhetorical questions. You ever catch a cold from a zoo alligator, Mr. Gennaro? Asks Arnold. Uh, rhetorically, of course, Gennaro's not going to answer that question. You want to see the Big Rex's health file, his vaccination record, his dental record? Page 131. Again, these are examples that um, evidence is available, should you want it. We imagine that you do not. Uh, they're just uh, listing out things. So rhetorical questions, again, uh, doing a good job arguing points, I guess, in, in favor of, uh, of John Arnold. Literary techniques, we have the metaphor, literally lost in a foreign geography he didn't even begin to comprehend on 126. So this is Grant explaining why he doesn't like computers. They're a foreign geography, literally a foreign geography he can't begin to comprehend. So what type of geography could you be so lost in that you couldn't begin to comprehend it? You can think about that. Where, where would you be in a geography that you were so lost you couldn't comprehend where you are? I think there's a mistake here. Might Crichton have meant a language instead of geography? Literally lost in a foreign language he couldn't begin to comprehend. Makes way more sense. Geography doesn't make any sense. Plus, a computer isn't literally a foreign geography. It is literally a different language. I'm almost positive that Crichton meant to put language in here because computers are literally written in a foreign language. He, that should be read, literally lost in a foreign language he didn't begin to comprehend. I don't know why it says geography. Shouldn't say geography. It clearly is a mistake. Uh, the next metaphor we have here, the lines on the map became densely overlaid, a child's scribble. And that's good because you can um, 
imagine uh, <laughs> just a, me a messy toddler scribbling away with crayons and things like that, just the lines all intersecting. And I think uh, that's a clear metaphor, makes, makes good sense to us. Similes, making little sniffing sounds like a bloodhound on a trail. This is Malcolm looking for more evidence to support his argument that the park isn't safe. This gives us the impression that he's actively pursuing more clues that will affirm his claims that the park is unsafe. I don't know why it kind of came across like he's a rat. And I, I can't imagine he's literally sniffing, so I don't know. But he is, he must have, he must be appear, appearing very attentive and maybe perhaps uh, self-confident in, in terms of the way he's going about this data. And he must be quite relieved to find himself in this computer room where he's uh, in his element, they say. Uh, the next simile here, the map began to light up like a Christmas tree. Dozens of spots of light, each tagged with a code number. And there we go. We can all picture a Christmas tree brightly lit. Uh, normally the lights are just turned on and off. They don't kind of emerge in a sequence. But uh, we, can, we can picture a, um, the screen lighting up very nicely. It's like software in a way. That's the description of how the animals have new versions and as they improve them they have a new version that they release like software and i don't know how many people are software developers um but i think we are familiar with you know <laughs> getting the beta version then the hard release and then updates and things like that so i think we're all familiar with that can you imagine it being dinosaurs though and uh here's another stylistic technique cursing in this chapter's case arnold calls nedry's computer a hell of a system and then reaffirming it's a hell of a goddamn system on page 130. Obviously, Arnold feels that this is more than just a system by his cursing. In version 4.4, Hammond does the same thing with Henry Wu, telling him he's done a hell of a job, which is even better than telling them that he's done a job, right? Uh, so swearing. That's when you're without words. You can just use swearing to make a, give your sentence a little more punch. Uh, we continue with the illusion of control. We, Malcolm kind of summarizes that Jurassic Park is, quote, intended to be a controlled world that only imitates the natural world on page 132. And then he looks at that graph, which shows an uh, uncontrolled population. It shows a natural population graph. In any case, uh, some of the things that they've put in for containment and control include animal tracking. This is one of the many control mechanisms in the park. An animal's locality and its past locations can be all graphically portrayed on the map. An animal is portrayed on the map by a code number. Their localities are accurate within 5 feet, updated every 30 seconds, and they are tracked every 30 seconds by the motion sensors, we're told on 127. The sensors are most mostly hardwired, but some are radio telemetered. These motion sensors, I guess, are also video cameras, and the computers run image recognition software to identify each species being tracked, on page 127, we're told. The computer has difficulty identifying the babies, which are too small, but they stick close to the herds, so they're, easily, they're easy to classify. They also have the category tally. Uh, every 15 minutes, the computer tallies the animals in all categories. Again, the double redundancy is shown, a separate counting mechanism cross-referencing that there are 238 animals all accounted for. If an animal goes missing, they'd know in five minutes. Malcolm asks if the counting system has ever been tested on page 128, to which Arnold says, well, in a way, he doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say yes thoroughly or absolutely, it's a smooth-running system. He says, kind of. <laughs> uh, when an animal dies in the park, for example, or stops moving, the computer has signaled an alert in the past. The animals can be verified by two methods. First, their movements can be tracked 
and their movements can suggest whether they're categorically in alignment with what's expected of their species. And second is direct visual confirmation with current ID images taken within the past five minutes. The counting is performed by the motion sensors, which cover 92% of the park's area. We're told 129. That doesn't cover the Jungle River, we're also told. They are also contained by multiple barriers, including fences, at least 12-foot-deep water-filled moats, and sometimes 30-foot-deep, depending on the animals, 50 miles of 12-foot-high electrified fences, including 22 miles around the island's perimeter, carrying 10,000 volts, we're told on page 130. To capture an animal in the park, Muldoon says they have taser shotguns, electrified nets, and tranquilizers, all non-lethal. And if an animal ever got off the island, it would die in the, quote, real world due to the lysine contingency in less than 24 hours. So the control system, or the computer, is tamper-proof. It's a hardened system, independent in every way, we're told on page 130. Independent power and independent backup power, and it doesn't communicate with the outside, so it can't be influenced remotely. So your hackers can't get in. So let's, uh, let's see what else we can discuss in this chapter here. We get the dinosaurs. There's an, in, uh, an overview of all the animals in the park. I've arranged these in version number order. So the earliest at 2.9 is the Hypsilophodonts, which there are 33 of. The next is version 3, the Velociraptors, and there are 8 of those. There are 11 Hadrosaurs at version 3.1, and 17 Apatosaurs at version 3.1, 16 Othnelia at version 3.1, and eight Triceratops at version 3.1. In version 3.9, we've got four Stegosaurs, 18 Styracosaurs, and 49 Procomsignathus. In version 4, we have 16 Uoplocephalids. In version 4.1, we've got two Tyrannosaurs and 22 Microceratops. In version 4.3, we've got the Dilophosaurs and the Pterosaurs, which we are to learn later are Sierodactylus. And of all these animals, yo, 17 apatosaurs is a lot of apatosaurs. If they were having trouble with all the dinosaur spores, why make so many of the biggest things out there? Maybe they're, like, really easy to make? I don't know. It seems like perhaps a species you wouldn't make so many of, what with them being incredibly difficult to control, feed, and clean up after. Also, there are eight raptors in a pen. But they have been busy. If, if there are 37 raptors counted and eight in the pen that means they were breeding like crazy before they got segregate segregated that's 29 new ones and there are a couple on a boat somewhere uh, making this an entire ecosystem of raptors out there from this first eight individuals they're like gremlins or rabbits or something uh, we're told more than once these are expensive animals which are cared for very carefully which is why there are only non-lethal weapons on the island they are said to not be adapted for this world, 65 million years from when they belong, and that they're fragile and delicate. Also with version 4.4, none of the animals are there yet on version 4.4. The animals are released in versions like software, says Arnold on 128. New releases, as they discover the glitches in the DNA, Wu's lab has to make new versions. Quote, sometimes there are bugs, so as we discover the bugs, Dr. Wu's labs have to make a new version, and we need to keep track of what version we have out there. We're told on 129. So I'm presuming all the animals of a particular species are of the same version. That, quote, bugs or glitches render an entire population of a species due for extermination or that they're just not viable. So they would be exterminated. And so they are entirely replaced by the latest version. And therefore, the adult and juvenile Tyrannosaurus, by this logic, are of the same version. They're just bred at different times. The copies, as we're told, are released in three batches, but 
we are to understand that they are all of the same version. There doesn't appear to be a connection between the breeding species in the park and what version number they are. That doesn't appear to be correlated. Uh, we're going to continue with this discussion on control being a hoax. Uh, as I'll, I'll mention every time we get into the subject, uh, recall that Dr. Ellie Sattler tells us that the threat of hoaxes are omnipresent, and the essence of a successful hoax is to present scientists with what they expect to see. We're told that on page 44. In this novel, a hoax presents scientists what they expect to see. And Malcolm even says, you'd expect to see that kind of graph to Arnold in this chapter. And Arnold answers him, yes. He even goes on to say that, quote, it's just a matter of your assumptions on page 132. Further confirming the data is confirming what you'd expect to see. And that means that this hoax is proving successful. Malcolm says, quote, I've learned what we need to know just by looking at this graph. So he knows that there's a problem here and he'll bring it up on the tour. But for now, he's keeping it kind of like under his cap. And that's going to make Gennaro a little bit upset later on in the next chapter. You'll see. Uh, and again, the illusion of control here is the hoax. And Malcolm is the only one who sees it for what it is so far. In terms of a timeline, Arnold says, I see the tour is starting on page 132. And so he's about to wrap up his comments on the control mechanisms. And this feels strange. Like, is the tour automated? Must they get in, in the ride at this moment or else they'll miss the tour? Like, why not take absolute, absolutely all the time you need to ask questions in the control room? Malcolm is basically being rushed along when he's still got questions to ask. And like, they're basically the only people on the island. Can't they just start this tour in the, into the park anytime they'd like? This just feels like an odd moment. And continuing with the God Complex, we get some more language uh, in these last couple chapters that reaffirm that what is being performed on this island is akin to, to, to Hammond playing God. Arnold says there's no point in getting starry-eyed about these animals. It's important for everyone to remember that these animals are created, created by man. On page 128, in the previous chapter, Wu is very deliberate in his description that this isn't creation, but rather reconstruction. On page 222, the past is gone and can never be recreated. They've constructed a version of the past, and he thinks they can make that version even better. And so here we've got kind of like the conversation, like words that we get in the, in the subject of creationism, that there's an intelligent design, the intelligent creator, and and. I don't know. Those are, there's, those are very godlike themes, or themes that come up in that, that godly conversation. So that's uh, there's more ammo for the fire there, and, and so to speak, more fuel for that for that conversation. All right. Thank you to to Jordan Mallon for for returning as a guest. Uh, our our connection timed out three times, and he was good enough to keep jumping back on. And every time it was just to say, okay, well, let's wrap this up and say goodbye. And uh, we just kept talking about dinosaurs. And uh, not all of that made the show. Jordan, thank you so much for coming back. That was a lot of fun. Um, I want to sign off today thanking also everyone for, for listening. Uh, thanks for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryanesrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, you can. You can drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. 
or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. You can find me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Until next time.